This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. We are back with a new installment of our Joy of Sects series. This time, we are sitting down with Jamie, a former member of the Canadian branch of the IMT. We will discuss a little bit about that organization, Trotskyism, and three different articles written by Alan Woods, including Trotsky's Suppressed Letter, Marxism versus Identity Politics, and Alan Woods' New Year's Message 2022, I Saw It in the Movies. Welcome, everyone, to uh, our Joy of Sects series. Um, This time, we are taking on the international Marxist tendency, um, probably best known for their extraordinarily dialectical critique of the Big Bang and also for flubbing a harassment cover-up and getting increasingly mad in public about it. And here, here to talk with us about their, uh, quote, experience uh, with the IMT is, is Jamie. Thank you for coming aboard. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, like you said, I'm Jamie. I, um, I joined the IMT around my freshman year of college. Um, I'm in my final year now, um, and over the four years I was in the organization, um, you know, a bit of a roller coaster, certainly. Um, the Big Bang thing, I'll get into it more later, but it plays a disappointingly small part in the daily life of being in the organization. Really? That's just the elevator pitch to get people excited? Well, the thing is, like... It's kind of like with, you know, with Posadism, where on paper, Posadism is really interesting with the whole, the dolphin stuff, the nukes. But then you actually read, like, mm. you know, interior Posadist documents, and, like, most of them are kind of dry. And it's like, you know, it's sad. You'd think it would be at least more of, like, a like a creative kind of hippie environment or something, you know, if they're putting out, like, something so bold as, like, the Big Bang. It's not, it didn't happen, you know, right. but it's really just the one. Well, that's kind of true of like any organization. You know what I mean? Like if you have like, if you even like, like flat earthers, right? Like they're just having a conference at the holiday Inn, like anybody else, any, yeah. Anything you have just kind of the meat, like even like church, you know, it's like, there's all this insane, you know, mythology and cosmology and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, you're just like standing in a lobby, eating some donuts, talking to people about insurance. You know, my, um, my main take about the big bang thing is it's kind of like, it's like a test where, um, when you're doing your formal little reading groups, when you're trying to become a member, Mm -hmm. um, you find out about the big bang thing as just one little, like a, a princess in the pea situation. It's one line in the dialectics pamphlet, which the rest of it is just sort of a cursory entry introduction to dialectical materialism. But there's one line about how the Big Bang didn't happen. 
Um, and when you're doing reading groups with people, as I did, um, maybe one out of every 20 people will be like, hey, sorry, um, what's with the Big Bang thing? <laughs> and you have to be like, oh, yeah, you know, we've said that we're like a communist organization, but like technically we're really an organization built around the ideas of like this white South African guy who was a Trotskyist uh, and him and this other guy wrote a book about science, even though neither of them were scientists. Uh, and at some point in doing that, they decided the Big Bang wasn't real. And you do kind of need to agree with that to join the organization. Not because it's a big part of their politics, but really just as an mm-hmm. act of deference. It's an article of faith. For those who don't know, uh, specifically me, why is the Big Bang uh, bad? <laughs> well... <laughs> Please. <laughs> Honestly, I couldn't even, like, the, the Big Bang stuff and the whole, like, the deep dialectics um, of the, the great mind of Alan Woods uh, was never really my big thing when I was in the organization. Um, Wait, so how do, we, how do we know he's wrong then? Well, I mean, all right. Well, let me see if I can do justice to this. Because in general, I am, like, metaphysically pluralist and happy to entertain different ideas about things as big as, you know, the cosmology of the universe and things so sort of epistemically blocked, like how much do we know about the origin of the universe? Um, But in fact, like, I think part of what this is coming from is that Engels in Dialectics of Nature, you know, written... (laughs) a number, like, decades and decades and decades before any of the, like, empirical evidence for, like, the Big Bang really comes to fruition um, from findings, background radiation findings from the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, And so it wasn't until that came about that you could really say that there was anything... Up until then, throughout, like, the the history of, you know, humankind, like, from what I can understand... It was pretty much like anyone's game for how like the structure of everything came as we understand it. And you know, space time is like physics talk just for like everything as we understand it. <laughs> like um, how that came to be. And yeah, Jamie, I think what you said about like a show of deference makes good sense because as far as I can tell, this is maybe like uh, what Kierkegaard might call the leap of faith, where you kind of uh, y- you show that you're willing to suspend reason for authority. And the thing that's so concerning about Marxist versions of this, as you know, that Alan Woods book is called Reason and Revolt. It's in the name of reason that you suspend reason, and that's um, that is because. What it essentially amounts to is a critique of the form of the Big Bang as being Christian in origin because it assumes that there is a moment of creation. The fact that the universe has a beginning is itself Christian in origin, so there's a genealogical critique, but the one that Engels actually gives in uh, Dialectics of Nature is that 
it's 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 more along the lines of not being able to comprehend like the dialectical reality of something existing forever and having to create this i i don't really get this because you know dynamics to me would suggest you know things starting and stopping but you know what Engels says in dialectics of nature and i did have to look at this because as i was trying to become a trotskyist like 10 years ago and i failed to become a trotskyist i could not do it um i remember you know this professor that was trying to recruit me was teaching a community college class and uh, in philosophy and like let me tell you these community college students tore this shit the fuck up they they were like this this is the most insane thing i've ever heard like and you know one of them was quite right to say that like you could have had this debate before the empirical for the empirical like research from the hubble space telescope like came about before we had that stuff you know and um woods and reason revolt goes through these in I say, quote, detail, but it's sort of just the sort of academic show of force that one recognizes from any, like, Stalinist, like, kind of, you know, bureaucratic shenanigans or something. Before that, yeah, it could have been anyone's game and Engels writing and, you know, whatever. Like, it, it's kind of sus to have a metaphysical position, you know? Like, he was kind of only doing it to spite this guy, Eugene During, uh, you know, anti-During, like, so this basically just links up to his broader concern of fidelity to the founding fathers of Marxism against, uh, you know, the, the nihilism of the you know, like potent decadent, like postmodern thought, right? Right. Postmodern thought or postmodern thought or basically anything that's like revisionist, but not in the ways that he likes that that seems to be running through these three pieces that we've read. Yeah, it's basically th this is just. It, it, yeah, it is very similar to like, this is just heresy. Okay. I mean, that's, that, I thought maybe he might have a more interesting justification for it, but it's just, this goes against dialectics of nature, therefore it's bad. Yeah, I think that the thing that really gets me about Reason and Revolt is just that it was allowed to be written. Because uh, <laughs> like Alan Woods, I think he, I Googled this a while back, he had a degree in Russian from... Mm -hmm. Moscow State University, um, which is very interesting considering the anti-Stalinist sort of thrust of his politics. I don't, I don't know his his life story, but he, his yeah. degree is essentially in it's, it's in the Russian language. And for some reason, him and this other guy who also had no scientific background were like, "We're going to write a book where we apply dialectics to uh, science because we have such big." powerful brains and we understand dialectics at a you know a quasi-religious level uh and the people around them just said go for it great thank you for blessing us with your insights and it right. said what the fuck you're not a scientist you don't know what you're talking about you're gonna come across like a complete crank so yeah i haven't i haven't read reason in revolt but based on what i've gleaned from these articles i could totally see how like reading these articles really taught me the value of an editor like you really, you really need somebody to be like, because like this writing, just the way it's written, like this is the most like Trotskyist writing I think I've ever read. 
I just want to pull up this. Let me pull. Let me just quote this. I was going to quote this tweet real quick. Uh, Trotsky writing. It was at this point which the envious Greg uh, Georgian serpent forced me out from the party and sent me into exile, and yet now continues to poison the roots of the revolutionary base. Stalin writing. Dialectics shows that an apple is actually a very simple thing. You know, like it's like this writing reads like the most like Trotskyist style. It's just I, it's it's a lot of like rhetorical flourishes. There's also a lot of uh, the same sort of like turns of phrase and metaphors being used like over over and over again. Uh, yeah, like it, this, this this really could have benefited from someone being like, I don't know about this man. Like, you know, I'll, I'll give the trots this like that writing style is more like Lenin than like Stalin. Like, you know, like Stalin's writing style, like Stalin's writing style is, is more or less what you suggested is just like, I don't know. He sounds like a physics instructor or something like who can't define anything. But <laughs> yeah, whereas, you know, this like overflowing with like rhetoric, it, it's like, it's like they're trying, he's like Trotsky's trying to be like an old Italian humanist or something. Yes. And ho- hoping people will pour over his correspondences as they have. You know, good job, my man, I guess. Like, because that, that's the point of writing, like, tweets, right? Like, or, you know, this whole, like, literary, like, kind of niche and penchant for, you know, over-exaggeration to make a point that is all over Marxism, like, all the time. And, like, it only kind of works as provocation. It's, like, it's crazy to take these things literally. I think Trotsky was definitely... of. All the people in the Marxist canon, like the best setup to become sort of a, you know, a dead prophet figure that people have this kind of weird quasi-religious relationship with, where, like you said, they're you know pouring over his correspondences and taking these these little quotes from them that are like a Rorschach test, right? Where like you know Trotsky's talking about whatever political situation and. 1921 you can kind of read into it whatever you want um especially with the way that he wrote which is so flowery i guess flowery would be a good way to put it um so he you know you do have to hand it to him on that i think um yeah i mean like trotsky's better at it than this guy like you see it's like uh i don't know you can see the bad influence of it and like the worst parts of it coming out it's um, um, it's very much the Trotskyist equivalent of uh, if you've ever read any like student group Maoist polemics where they're obviously mm-hmm. trying to write in the style of like translated Chinese writing. <laughs> yeah. It was like, like Bob Bacon's book about how like horses can't give birth to frogs, but unicorns can soar beyond the horizon. Yes, exactly, and it it doesn't come across as obvious with this, but I think. I think Woods is probably the most obvious example of just a blatant and kind of pompous, awkward, derivative Trotsky-style writing. Yeah, that really comes across in his, like, you know, yearly address or whatever. And I, and I love that he, on the one hand, because they're, they have a positivist kind of spin and they're trying to spin it for the Yay Science Reddit kids... Like, they want to cash in on the James Webb Space Telescope. But then they also have to be like, yeah, I mean, you know, whatever fucked up background radiation bullshit it says can't knock us off dialectics. (laughs) Philosophy still wears the crown. You can't take it from us, science. We won't let you. 
Like, yeah, that New Year's message, I, that part really felt to me like the closest of like, what if Peggy Hill became a Trotskyist? Like, it, it, I don't know. There were, there were just so many weird non-sequenters it, in this. It really comes across to me as something he wrote while he was falling asleep on the couch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, on New Year's Eve, it starts out with him just saying like, you know, on, on New Year's, they, the bourgeoisie, are showing us Christian movies to make us believe in Jesus again or something. And it's like, I think you're just watching <laughs> me yes. at midnight on New Year's and you're an old man who's sundowning and you wrote this. But it's like ideas of reference sort of like, oh, I Charlton Heston is on my TV because the bourgeoisie wants Charlton Heston to be my all working people. And it's like, no, Alan, you can change the channel. <laughs> yeah. No, that, yeah, that, I, that is, that is literally what happened. And then I guess at some point Jaws was on and then he tries to like dip into, oh yeah, try to do like his best Zizek or whatever. Um, 100%. Yeah. Where he's like, uh, it's not sharks, but the capitalist system that is systemically destroying our planet, <laughs> poisoning the air we breathe, the food we eat, the water we drink. God. And again, this, I think it's, it's similar to reason in revolt here where like, you know, I have political criticisms of the IMT. Um, and I know, I guess for context for anyone who isn't aware of the full situation here, I I wrote a public statement about why I left the Canadian section of the IMT, where I went over there, bungled abuse cover-up and my general very brief uh, political beef with them. Um, they have since characterized it as a political attack. But... To me, like, I feel like my criticisms of them, to call them political, feels like I'm giving them too much credit almost. Because, like, the issue with with Reason and Revolt or with the strange New Year's article, it's not even really political yet. It's interpersonal almost, where the real issue is just that the interpersonal dynamics in the organization are such that this this old guy, like the, the Joe Biden of Trotskyism can just say, like, I would like to write a New Year's address where I talk about all the movies that are coming out with giant robots uh, and and how that represents, you know, the crisis of overproduction. Uh, and no one around him can challenge his ego enough to say, there hasn't been a giant robot movie in decades. What the fuck are you talking about? No, that's wrong. Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. Oh, you know too. what? You're right. Yeah. The, the giant robots are good guys. See, this yeah, see, this is why you got kicked out. You you weren't sufficiently respectful of the uh, kaiju and giant robot movies being produced uh, by hard by hardworking creatives in in Hollywood. No, but like I I mean no, I see what you mean though. Like, and that's that's one reason I actually kind of wanted to talk a little bit about Gorbachev. Um, huh. just really. All right, so you know, lay your Gorby on me here. So you know, a pizza, a pizza man, uh, Pizza the Hut died recently. R.I.P. Press first. And it was interesting to me just just kind of like watching watching the reactions to it because okay like yes this is a man who fumbled the ball like on a world historic scale um you know as something of a fuck up I I kind of relate to this man uh in a right. deep, like beneath the skin yeah. right right he's a, a a classic millennial in the sense that his starry eyed idealism and belief in institutions really didn't pay off. <laughs> 
Yes. No, th- this is it though. But seeing like online all of the kind of like, I mean, okay, we all did the pizza memes, you know, you know, it was, that's funny. There is something kind of like rid- ridiculous about him as a figure. But seeing like, I don't know, all the, like, the abuse like heaped upon this guy, like, um, you know, after his death by people online, like not, not quite at like the queen levels bad, but pretty bad and, and, um, and virulent from, yeah, from uh, many people, Marxists. From people who never fucking heard of Boris Yeltsin, apparently. Like Right. But, it, right. And it, this bothered me in some way because, like, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that there's, there's, I mean, I mean like, we all agree he handled that badly. And we can debate how sincere he was or whatever. That's fine. But, like, I think the real problem people have is that they see it, it, it's an aspect of themselves that they want to disavow. Because, you know, here's a man who basically... Who, for whom, like, I believe, you know, was a genuine socialist and wanted to reform the system, but he failed, and then history kind of passed him by. But, like, he wanted to make it less repressive because he didn't realize that that kind of socialism was just held together by repression. There's something deeply tragic about it. He, like, he basically had to live at, live as this kind of, like, Ridiculous figure for whom history passed him by. I guess the difference between him and Trotsky, though, is that, like, Trotsky kind of raged against the dying of the light, and he had this kind of um, sort of passive acceptance of it. But I think um, that existential condition is one that I think people have more in common with Gorbachev than they want to think. And so it's much easier to just, like, heap abuse at him as the fuck up, where it's like, you know, people talk about, seem to think about Gorbachev the way that Mark Wahlberg thinks about 9-11, where he's like, man, if I'd been on that plane, things would have gone a little different, you know? It's like, but it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure if, I'm sure if you were in that situation, you would have navigated this insane uh, transition by yourself uh, much better and with much more political acumen than somebody who managed to like crawl up the snake pit of the uh, Brezhnev era Politburo. You know what I mean? So, I, and I guess to bring to bring it back around to what we're talking about here, all of this stuff is just as pat. All this stuff within this like Trotskyist milieu, like history has long since left the station. You know what I mean? And so these people are, are basically just stuck squabbling amongst themselves, sublimating their interpersonal feuds into uh, broader like theoretical and political disagreements and maneuverings with it within these organizations that have no organic connection to the class and i would say as well like like you were saying about you know the sort of heroic imagining of yourself as like well you know if i was in gorbachev's position i would have saved socialism trust me mm-hmm. um you see i think similar dynamics in a lot of trotskyist organizations where i mean why do you become a trotskyist it's because you're convinced that like you know if you were in that situation if the revolution was degenerating and, and being betrayed, you would be the brave face standing amongst the crowd and, you know, get expelled with the rest of the, the left opposition. But then you have a bunch of people, at least in like the recent sort of weird nightmare that's been going on inside the IMT, like people getting expelled via like secret votes and like ratting each other out to leadership for having a group chat where they're discussing like, Hey, is is this kind of fucked up to you? Like this, it feels kind of weird what's going on. Like just for having a group chat where they're like, I think leadership might be going a little, uh, a little crazy with it. Um, Just like ratting each other out. And it's like, 
I'm sorry. Are you guys not all kind of convinced that like you would be the Trotsky in, you know, the past, but like you're behaving like this now when the stakes are like comedically lower, you know, it's not like an actual revolution has happened and there's all that stress. Like you're a student club of a few hundred people and you're already doing the Stalin thing. It's sad. I don't know. It's deeply sad. And, um, to resort to some language used in the Marxism versus identity politics uh, article, you know, it it is reflective of an alien class interest that Marxism is known for, the sort of bait and switch between, and first of all, first of all, alien class interest sounds really, uh, I don't know, it's structurally anti-Semitic or something, but... There's something else in that document about, like, the bankers rubbing their hands together I in glee. see that about the bankers, yes. Like, there, yeah, there's that thread running through it. Yeah, now I'm just imagining I, the happy merchant. I think, I, I mean, I think we should still be able to slander bankers, but I do think, um, you know, I think aliens you are okay. Without, you can do it without the happy merchant, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, yeah. If, if, if you could just lay off the happy merchant, I'd be, I'd be happy with that. Um... What he's happy. Would you like? Would you like any of these Sorry. wares? By the way, okay. Um, <laughs> God, I totally forgot. Why did I bring? Why was I saying this? <laughs> In what context? Alien class interest. Alien class interest. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, unfortunately, like Trotskyists have a terrible read of what was wrong with the Soviet Union. They end up with an extremely idealist and great man of history oriented view of what went wrong in the Soviet Union and the fundamental continuity between the bad stuff and the good stuff, quote unquote, like, and how the Bolshevik, essentially like the culture of the Bolshevik, not just the Bolshevik party, but like most of Russian life, you know, there were very few like genuine like Democrats in, in Russian political life. Um, and you know the the Bolsheviks were some of the most like hardened like Im- like beyond good and evil immoralists that you know the Bauman affair is like is this example where like you know party militant like that like makes like a kind of crude drawing of like a woman comrade that and she kills herself. And he's not, like, reprimanded at all or something. And it basically causes, like, a big split in the social democratic movement. It's the origin of the Bolshevik-Menshevik split. And, like, anyway, like, these people have a sort of, like, hardcore sectional interest as a party that is obvious that, like, for a long time, at least now, now that I'm looking back on this stuff, now that I'm not, like, a Leninist or someone who's trying to save the Russian revolution from itself somehow. Um, You know, it's like pretty clear that the Bolsheviks had this weird understanding of themselves as delivering the proletarian class interest while sneaking in their sort of professorial, professional, like, like kind of underlying desires, like in, like in sublating that into the theory, into the activity and how it's not just a Bolshevik thing, it's sort of like a social democrat thing 
there's it's sort of like an like ortho Marxism with regards to the like the old school social democrats like it's there's there's a kind of um there's there's a group of people that this body of theory can sometimes flatter and provide jobs for in a, in a kind of like good guy bureaucracy and you like once you have the taste of the possibility for this you start to like drift towards it like almost like almost involuntarily or something like i don't know i'm, I'm like trying to fumble around for a good way to describe this ideological sort of process but it's sort of more particular to like humanities academics and and stuff there's like a there's a whole professional like like layer to it that's like it really changes over time because you know trotsky you know in addition to being like whatever he was before the revolution like like most of like most of the politico people were lawyers but you know afterwards this guy like kind of threw together an army, like, uh, pretty quickly. And, you know, regardless of how one feels about all of the super cool things that Trotsky crushes and lies about, like, along the way, (laughs) um, like, it's, you know, it's a remarkable military achievement. And I think that's the, one of the unspoken reasons that Trotsky has all of this, all of this, like, revolutionary bona fides and it's something that Trotskyists nor Stalinists really want to talk about because it sort of inverts their images is that you know Trotsky founded the Red Army more or less um and Trotsky is sort of the militarist thug even though he plays this like revolutionary like intellectual highbrow like witty humanist character you know like he also behaves like Stalin he just talks different the Trotskyist power fantasy for some of the people involved in these groups is uh, the fact that Trotsky started out as like a nerdy, you know, intellectual type and then went to being this like, you know, Red Army commander. Um, If you're kind of like a, you know, a nerdy university student, you can see yourself in that, uh, hopefully, as you you, you can take your glasses off, let down your hair and shake it out. And yeah. like all of a sudden, you know, she's all that. And you're like transformed into the, like, into into the the military Trotsky, the one that like that that image where in I think there was some like kind of propaganda cartoon depicting Trotsky, you know, with you know exaggerated Jewish features, of course, because it's a right wing cartoon, um, on like a mountain of skulls, you know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, like I think that's the transformation that most you know, Trotskyists are hoping for. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think on some level, it's it's also more just looking for an opposition figure within this, like, Stalinized tradition. Much in the same way, like, Mao held appeal for students in, uh, you know, like, the 1960s France especially, where it, this seems to be maybe a more uh, left alternative within the Stalinist tradition that they can use as a, as a pole around which to uh, voice their dissatisfactions with uh, the existing socialist uh, parties or movement in their context, like a lot of the Maoists were deeply affected with like the French communist, deeply disaffected with like the French Communist Party. I mean, yeah, obviously there, there definitely is like the nerd fantasy, uh, you know, the, yeah, the kind of academic nerd fantasy for like right wingers. Maybe it's like Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, yeah, for 
for like socialists or communists, maybe they identify with Trotsky. But I don't know if that's necessarily like the driving factor here. I think it's because he was based he basically made himself a poll for everyone who was basically still still supported the Russian Revolution, but was deeply uh, disaffected with Stalin for a period. And because he was like the the founding person on an international level that was a, that was who stepped up and did that, you know, like uh, Bordiga famously refused to because, well, he he understood that whatever was created, like a fourth international, wouldn't have an organic tie to the class. You know, he was just he was the, he was the guy who did that. And yeah, it was and it was him for a while until the Sino-Soviet split, and then for a while it was Mao. Um, and then, you know, it, of course, splinters do a bunch of different things as time goes on. I think a big part of that appeal is that with Trotsky, you really don't have very much to answer for. It's all hypothetical. Um, and if you're trying to uh, present, especially if you're trying to present socialism as a concept to like university students, um, as like a you know their first contact with politics, it's a lot easier to say like, listen, you know, here's there's this concept, it's socialism, and it's essentially that you know if we all work together, eventually we're going to hit peak production, and we're going to have you know luxury space communism, and you'll just be able to press a button in your bed and get treats delivered to you. It's it's going to be amazing. Um, you've heard of communism, but that was all the it was. Uh, bad and actually our guy he he said it was going to be bad you know but he he had such a tragic little life um yeah. you know it, if only he was in charge things would have worked out so you know join yeah. our join our club and uh, we'll make it happen it's a very very good sell especially to uh, university students specifically yeah yeah the problem with that communism is that it had a mustache and didn't have glasses and a beard. Um, that was like the main issue. But like <clears throat> the fact that Trotskyists have to skip over the Civil War period in order to make this pitch, well, it kind it kind of defines the kinds of Trotskyists that there are, because there is a kind of Trotskyist that's basically like social democratic, and there's a kind of Trotsky, or, or maybe sort of like you know avant humanist, like whatever. And then there's a kind of Trotskyist that is like very, like very much more consistent with Trotsky in power. And I mean that in a, you know, more terrifying like way because Trotsky during the civil war period, well, I thought, I don't know. I read a Zizek's like intro, his like little revolution books on, you know, Mao and, uh, Trotsky, you know, had these editions of Mao and Trotsky, and he wrote, like, little intros. The one on Mao I thought was garbage, but the one on Trotsky I thought was, like, kind of insightful. That's like, look, the Civil War Trotsky, that's the real guy. The guy who got kicked out of a club and is like, oh, man, I love democracy. Democracy's great. Like, that guy, that guy's full of shit. Like, that's not the real Trotsky. Like, you, like when, when I see Obama like, talk about what he would do or something. Like, that's bullshit, man. Like, you had the power to do stuff, and when you were in power, what did you do? Right? Like, that's who, that's, like, who you should be remembered for. Like, like, like what you should be remembered for as a political figure. You know, if, if we just let Jimmy Carter be the guy who builds houses, you know, kind of, like, not remembering him correctly. 
like, <laughs> um, and yeah, there's just this like this garbage bait and switch that like, I, like being like some kind of hardcore anti-revisionist or something sort of actually even prepares you more for like the intellectual reality of what happens in the civil war. <laughs> well, and I mean, this stuff, persistence of these tendencies, it's like, it's both about the Russian revolution and kind of not right. Like, you're right. Like, there's obviously the Trotsky that is created. The Trotsky is basically a stand-in for, you know, like a humanist critique of the Soviet Union, in right? And that's why that tradition has produced, like, some very useful thought and thinkers uh, since then. Because, yeah, it was people who uh, were – began to grapple with the question of, like, what is the Soviet Union? But the other thing is, too, is that what's useful about it is that it does – it is able to present somebody, um, you know, like a pamphletized uh, explanation and catechism that they can run with, as opposed to, you know, really trying to understand, like, with what happened with the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union as a whole, and what is it, and how does it fit into, like, um, economic categories and all that shit. Like, those are, like, extremely, that's, like, extremely, there's a lot of information that you have to to get to, to that point, you know what I mean? And it it's, it's not something that you could very easily explain to somebody, I think, uh, off the street. So it makes sense that things would be, like, flattened in this way in an activist context. Yeah, and I think as well, like, you were saying about the, you know, the sort of history of Trotskyism as a, you know, a vibrant tradition, I would say, at, at its prime, at least. Like, there have been a variety of very interesting, well-written you know, books out there by Trotskyists. Um, and for a long time, yeah, if you were like a, you know, Stalin, that's not, you know, that's not looking so good type person on the left, you would just sort of defaulted to at least being Trotskyist adjacent. The IMT specifically traces their heritage to the militant tendency in Britain. So the relationship that just generic Trotskyism has with the Russian Revolution, right? It's this sort of great historic rapturous event that needs to be studied and replicated. Um, they also kind of have with this much more pitiful like sect in, in Britain and the time that they, you know, had a sort of brief period of success, but then got kicked out of the Labour Party and split and disintegrated. Uh, so it's sort of like a photocopy of a photocopy in a way where they tried to do Bolshevism in Britain and, you know, had some minor success and then failed in sort of a pathetic way. Um, so it, it's a weird impasse where like, at, at least like historic Trotskyism, there was some creative potential but at this point, it's just so formulaic, like attempting to replicate, you know, what this sect in Britain did in the 80s, which was attempting to replicate what the Bolsheviks did in 1917. And it's, right. you get smaller and smaller returns each time around. Well, and, the, that, that, and that is the persistence of this stuff is that it because like I, there isn't a clear idea at this point about what to do, but they have what is to be done. Well, hey, what is to be done? It's in the book. It's called What is to be done? Like, we just do that. You know what I mean? You do that, and then you have a Russian revolution, and it's great. Yeah. We just is to be do that. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you can see that with the momentum case that you were just talking about, right? They are doing the same thing everybody else on the left does, which is some variant of tail tailism, whether you are directly entered into like the big, whatever on the spectrum of your country is left party that you have, whether you're directly in it or whether you're agitating around it or whether you're agitating around the issues that are uh, driving uh, the current political configuration of that party, you're basically engaged with that. And whether you're in it, out it, around it, they're all doing essentially the same shit. But the Trotskyists can tell themselves, oh no, I actually have a theory of non-entryist entryism, of entryism. And uh, th- this is actually going to, this is going to be different. Yeah, it's entryism, it's French. So yeah, I was in, um, I was in Fight Back, which is the Canadian section of the IMT. And the really strange thing about them is I think the organization is like 20 plus years old. Um, And initially from what I've heard from other people who've left the organization is initially it was like at least vaguely a labor organization. Like they did strike support. They actually helped with, you know, uh, things that unions were doing. Um, And then Apparently, orders sort of came on high from London, where the tendency is located uh, centrally, that they were going to switch to just sort of like student campus organizing. Um, So they did that. Um, And there was like a brief period of time where they tried to engage with the NDP, which is Canada's like social democratic party. Um, But I think they got kicked out of the youth section or at least like just sort of gave up on it at some point so the traditional like trotskyism thing being entryism like they don't even really do that well i was gonna say like when when they turn to the university that's that's when it's 100 percent grifting time like that's basically that's where these organizations essentially go to retire this is like when uh a boomer basically draws down their 401k and starts white knuckling it until retirement, right? It's like, okay, we're going to go to a university. We're going to get, uh, we're, we're going to have a consistently, uh, high level of turnover because people only go to university for so long. And that way we can burn people out and then we can keep selling them the same horse shit over and over again. We don't have to update anything in any significant way. And yeah, even though they couldn't do entryism into the party, if you're on campus, you're basically tailing the same issues that everybody else is fucking doing, but we're gonna we're doing it in a more socialisty way. Yeah, like I I recall at some point, like I don't know, maybe like ten years after I stopped watching Nickelodeon, at some point I turned it back on, and uh, they had just the same commercials. Like like half the commercials were the same, like not like you know for like dumb like products or toys or you know some shit. And I realized that, like, there must be such a high rate of turnover in Nickelodeon's audience. It's not like anyone's going to know. Like, and that principle is surprisingly durable throughout, like, bourgeois society. And if you're trying to run some kind of organization off of grift labor, uh, wow, it's like such a gift to you. If if the point of your organization is to keep your organization going, which is to keep your organization going, like then you can do that. And the thing that always gets me is that all I knew about the left was that it produced burnouts. 
when I was growing up, you know? Like, before I really, like, became engaged with it. And that functional tendency for the left to produce burnouts that end up more conservative than they might have otherwise been is, like, like a deep critique that has stuck with me and is still, like, a problem for me today. Yeah, and I think that's actually the point you made about um, people coming out of it more conservative than they otherwise would be uh, is so strong here because a big thrust of the political uh, education that you get within the IMT, right, because it is a student organization at this point, is they assume when you're joining that you have all this postmodern identity politics baggage, which in my experience actually being a university student is like, maybe I'm biased because I go to school for social work, but it's mostly your professors just trying to teach you how to be a human being. Like, you know, they're not trying to get you into like Deleuze in like second year sociology really they're just trying to explain to you that it's like bad to be racist in the sciences which is generally true like there is a lot of bullshit in academia but it's really like once you get up there I feel like um so you have all these university students who at least in my experience like were overwhelmingly like well off um, mm-hmm. who, you know, have, I guess, what would be termed petty bourgeois class interests, uh, who are then told that, like, you know, the wacky nonsense, all of the queer theory you're reading is, uh, you know, that's petty bourgeois, and you need to purge yourself of these, you know, academic ideas to be a communist. And then, yeah, like you said, inevitably, four years later, they're burned out. They no longer need a socialist fraternity as sort of a life raft to get through school because they've graduated. So they leave. And what residual impact does that political education have on someone who's now, you know, a program director at some not-for-profit? It's really to just (laughs) make them think it's okay to laugh at pronouns because it's queer theory. They're not going to be more of a communist in like 10 years, probably just like, you know, if they leave the organization on bad terms, as most people do, they're just going to have heard a bunch of socially conservative, reactionary backlash. And that's probably at least like, in my read, what's going to stick with most of these people is sort of just a disdain for anyone they view as like, hippie adjacent. Well, and yeah, I mean, and that's, but that's what that's what college is for. (laughs) <laughs> like, like colleges or, you know, the intersectional version of that is to create like people who work in HR. Right. And you, you're basically um, you're giving them a framework for them to adjudicate like these different competing oppressions that are viewed in this kind of like flat rhizomatic way. Um, and the adjudication takes place within the context of whatever the, you know, hegemonic forces, whether it's the state or the organization or, you know, the Chipotle that you're the regional HR coordinator for, you know, like that, like that's what that's what that's for. You know, again, the college exists to make those people, you know. Yeah. It, and it, you know, also reproduces all kinds of like bullshit biases in, in the, you know, <laughs> in the left, like, or at least gives a bunch of people the requisite experience to say, yeah, socialism's. Socialism, you know, I tried all that. Yeah, I was a stupid kid too. 
Um, that's bullshit, obviously. I mean, you know, they taught me at least that pronouns are bullshit. So, you know, at least I carry a little something with me. But, like, you know, that that whole thing, uh, no, that's never going to work. Grow up, you know? Grow up and get a job. Like, that, like that's like 90% of the people that I knew that were in socialist organizations end up somewhere. Maybe, you know, maybe not like haha pronouns. But um, other than that, pretty much there like now look if the if the economy gets shittier and shittier and you do have maybe like a surplus of like overeducated people okay maybe those people become the organic intellectuals of the working class but there really is a problem of like the college as an institution that's designed to like inculcate like uh certain middle class values in people and to you know basically turn them into like I mean, I don't think the conservatives are completely wrong about that. Like, these are, it is kind of designed to, like, make people into, dem- into Democrats, you know? Oh, yeah. But I think part of that is, like, it's just the path that you're on as someone who is now, like, a university degree haver, you know? Where, like, the workplaces that you're in just as much create that mentality. Uh, so no matter how much you've been inoculated against it by, like, you know, Marxism versus identity politics, if that is the life trajectory you're on, it's the life trajectory you're on, you know? Right. I've, I've never seen any of these, like, you know, we're, I'm, I'm not feminist, but I'm for women's liberation or whatever. I've never seen one of these arguments that goes very well. Like, and I realize that there's, like, a whole tradition in the workers' movement, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. What, what, the workers' movement. What, what about Bell Hooks? She said she wasn't a feminist. Yeah, well, that, she she wasn't a feminist because it was too white, right? And <laughs> very. I know. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just picking a disruptive example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that's like that's a good like that's you know that good counter example of where it's you know kind of valid. Um, from how do I put this though? You're you're never going to get people that are really focusing on like this like big picture like macro structure to take gender as seriously as other things because gender is sort of an inter- it, unless you know pe- people are being thrown out of their house right like for being like gender weird which you know happens um people like like uh People like are reproduced within their their classes with gender. Like you know, women are, men are, like uh, trans people are, cis people are. Like like you can have the like you can have a version of the whole conversation in this inside of your class bubble, inside of your ethnic bubble, um, and and like. It's going, like, especially as feminism just becomes a standard humanist value, which, you know, doesn't seem at odds with the entire just normal, like, liberal humanist package, whatever. Like, anti-racism, sure. Like, you know, we're against transphobia, and even though, like, we don't have, like, a good theorization of it, we're just rolling with it. Awesome. Like, Like, humanist values have changed, like, a lot in the last 15 years. Like... It's, you know, it's kind of been nice to see, personally, but, like, the backlash is, has, is starting to get pretty extreme. I've never seen one of these organizations that doesn't end up also doing some weird shit with regards to sexual harassment and rep- even just repressing, you know, the reports 
or like or, or doing anything about its members like it's like almost one-to-one like a map function um and like there's just like an impulse to say i am not a feminist or something it might come from the same region of uh the you know political brain or something i i, I don't know what it is like <laughs> yeah and something that was so so brutal about being in this organization was like you said at this point i think feminism to most people even most just like first year university students means you know just a generic good thing it means like yeah i'm against sexual harassment and you know other forms of mistreatment that we all agree are bad that's that's really i think what it means for for most people at this point who who identify with that label um so you have like you know these first year students or whatever who want to join the socialist club and you have to say like uh yeah well just so you know um uh we're against uh identity politics um and so uh you know if you join you have to stop calling yourself a, a feminist but like don't worry we're still really on board <laughs> with the whole uh you know a woman thing uh big fans of women here uh you know <laughs> But, uh, you know, don't don't go calling yourself a feminist or like, you know, anything crazy. And it just it feels disgusting to have to say that whole spiel, you know, to some bright eyed like 18 year old. I mean, that's just like a weird way to go about it, too, uh, because like, I, mean, I, I mean, I certainly I mean, there are aspects of this critique of intersectionality and even identity politics that I share. Uh, like, I do still think like class should be prioritized above everything else. But like, I don't know. To like to like to like lead with that is like a very weird. I don't know. Yeah, and like I mean, I, I agree with them too. I w- I was in the organization for four years, so I definitely was. I was drinking the Kool Aid very aggressively for quite some time, and I I still think that mm-hmm. like the, the overall shape of their politics really isn't that incorrect. Like the just the consensus of it is like the working class needs to work together all of us to defeat capitalism which like right it 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 ignores like why like people from uh, you know particularly like racially marginalized groups have especially in the united states uh have come to be suspicious of you know like trade unionism or like yeah it's kind of like class first marxist politics like you know a lot of a lot of the failure of that stuff to coalesce in the united states uh, directly comes from its inability to overcome like these racial antagonisms, right? So it's like, you know, I mean, yes, there are problems with this stuff, but it's also important to understand like why it is like people aren't just like I don't know being bamboozled by like groomer liberal professors or whatever uh, to adopt like an ideology that is divisive or whatever. Like there there have been like real uh, historical failures and social divisions that were. Uh, created and uh, the, uh, the basically the, the workers movement in the United States like failed to address uh, sufficiently to the degree necessary for its own success, you know, and that is something that you know has to be I think worked through uh, before we come out on the other side and can actually have a meaningful basis for unity. But the problem with all this like um, this era that like this was written in with like the intersection because I witnessed the way this stuff literally could be like both divisive and just used in like a very uh bad faith way on the ground 
uh, by by like bad faith actors. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone you know is going to say no. That never happens. Like right. Like we well, we we're all familiar with that. This is at the height of you know basically the Obama era and like literally the Hillary Clinton campaign where the the idea that was being pushed by like the liberals and by the Democratic Party was this idea that of you know excellence on the part of like blacks and women uh personal excellence will basically be the way for them to transform themselves right this deeply like neoliberal idea and like representation which you still see now a lot around a discourse around like media right because that's all that's left like that stuff will be the path to liberation for like oppressed people in the united states right that's all that's what that's all that really has to happen um and that was like a thing that that was that they hammered people with in a very bad faith way to actually prevent any kind of material amelioration even being proposed or put on the table. Yeah. No, no, no. Like, of course, that stuff is real. But I think if you want to get to long-term communist class interests and you do any accounting for the kind of workers' movements that you did get in the 19th to 20th centuries, the kind of politics they had on gender and the way that their politics on gender were sort of like used to structure them in a nationalist class compact to kind of close them off from the greater proletariat. You're just sort of missing like how the way that people reproduce like their, you know, daily lives as like economic units is a part of class already in some like important respect that the Marxist tradition is sort of bad at, even though it has all the raw materials for it even though like angles is basically like right there and like a bunch of rad fans are like, holy shit angles. This is, this is hot fire. Like, you know, and develop that from there. And I don't think, you know, maybe like, you know, simply rewriting the historical materialism with, you know, sex struggle instead of class struggle or something is the right way to do it, you know, but props to Shulam and Firestone for doing that exactly that. And, uh, but, like, you know, I, I just think, like, if you try to game out a workers' movement, you end up with social democracy unless you can, like, get beyond the national compact and a big part of the national compact, keeping the family together, and uh, some form of natalism to promote the population. Um, so it just flows out of being, like, a real strategist about long-term class interests, that you would care about these things. And because politics are always informed by anthropology, any like, this isn't one-to-one, but people that organize in a classless way, usually immediate return hunter-gatherers, foragers that just eat as, you know, kind of as soon as they get back, you know, they just get back and like, instead of maybe like, you know, throwing it in a pile and distributing it get get back like here it is here's the food let's go um that kind of society me see food me eat yep yeah that kind of society which you know all the evidence points to being the you know probably what humans have done majority of our existence um is is one of the simplest forms of organizing life like like most of those forms not all but most of those forms are also pretty gender egalitarian in the sense that they like, they have gender roles, 
they just, just sort of don't enforce them, right? And there's probably some reason that that kind of cultural, like, that kind of thing correlates with human communism. Like, all the times that it's really existed. Like, you know, it's, it's like probably rule zero for human egalitarianism, if, if you want to abstract from that anthropology. Like, that you, you don't, like, enforce this stuff on a personal level. And that suggests to me that there's probably some common circuitry in the stuff that makes people, like, you know, p possessive and authoritarian in their, like, personal and love lives versus what makes people, you know, aggressive and sadistic in politics and thinking about outgroups. Like, I, I think those parts of the brain must be, like, the same fucking parts of the brain or something. Like... There's, there's too much in common there. So I just think it, it stems from the communist interest that you would give a shit about this in a fairly radical way, in a way that you would want to think of yourself as more radical than the queer theorist, more radical than, you know, your average trans-like theorist. Not less. Not like, no, 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 we're going to... No, we don't need radical ecology. We don't need, you know, radical, like, queer shit. We don't need, like, you know, radical like, thought on, like, you know, black liberation, like, we want to have, like, super milquetoast politics on that shit. All the stuff that matters uh, to the real, like, proletariat, like, right now, we're gonna have, like, super boring fucking, like, lizard politics on that. What the fuck is that? Yeah, it's such a, like, I watched so many people get turned off by that, and I mean, rightly so, I guess, as it turns out, because it, like, I joined yeah. when I was, like, previously, before I joined the IMT, I was involved in, like, the radical queer anarchist scene in Toronto. And, you know, I got pretty sick of that for some of the reasons we've talked about, like, people using identity for very cynical, just sort of petty interpersonal things. And it's just kind of exhausting to be involved in, like, a you know, an activist scene like that. So when I encountered the IMT and they said, like, you know, we're against identity politics, um, to me, I thought we all kind of understood what that meant, uh, which was like, right, you know, uh, Tumblr call-out posts about someone's, like, Sherlock fan fiction just sort of being a, a silly waste of everyone's time. Um and there was a really brief period where I actually saw this as being like a an honestly very hopeful project. I felt very socially marginalized um, for a variety of reasons most of my life. And then being like a you know, weird transsexual in a group of, you know, just random straight white guys in some cases who were like, you know, calling me comrade. I was like, hey, you know, maybe this can actually go somewhere. Um, and I think at its best, obviously, something like that still could, uh, like just a workers movement that involves different groups of people. Obviously, that's something as a communist I still very much believe in. Right. But then you're at a point where all of a sudden you're like, hey, you know, I, I really think that we should update our sexual assault policy because it's really really bad and like traumatic in its own right for people to go through 
And then all of a sudden, you know, you're doing identity politics. And <laughs> for me, it was just this sinking feeling of like, oh, God, I thought you got it. You know, I thought by identity politics, we all meant the silly stuff that people do on on Twitter that's unproductive and and genuinely divisive. But just in the way, I guess, that like anything is when you mix careerism and social media algorithms, it goes badly. But no, you just meant like, like even the best takeaways of like, you know, uh, second wave feminism in terms of like, you know, theorizing say domestic violence as not just a private matter but as a a social issue like you have not absorbed that and you genuinely think it's feminist identity politics even though it's at this at this point just like common sense in like social services yeah in the, the in the 90s there's like a whole sea change in sexual harassment policy and like it's just regular accepted stuff now being shitty like these dudes are is also like regular and sometimes accepted informally like and but it you know i don't know i remember when the when when these things had to like be kind of argued in public like a little bit like when you know my mom for instance growing up was like not a feminist she just thought feminists were annoying you know like um and you know, personally, a lot of my feelings about identity politics were colored by me being Jewish and experiencing kind of right-wing identity politics, um, being like, oh, that, that, that feels bad. It makes me feel bad. It's, they're, t- they're telling me I'm not really Jewish if I don't, like, you know, agree with this project. And I think that's fucked. Like, um, so, yeah, I don't know. There is this moment where you're like, oh, God, like, this is credited to other people, but I'm pretty sure I said this, like, like long, long ago. The only thing worse than identity politics is anti-identity politics. Like, when when people completely react to the, you know, it's like ways that our society has gotten like more tolerant, like with just like vitriol. Like, that is what's driving, like, 90% of reactionaries, anyway. And so, like, what difference, are, like, if, if you have these people that have extremely kind of, like, retrograde, like, personal kind of behavior, or at least tolerate it, or will, like, institutionally cover it up, which, you know, isn't the same as doing it, but is, like, adjacent to it and complicit in it, like, and then they're also kind of doing this socialist brainwashing thing where you have to suspend your belief in the big bang in the name of reason because the big bang has an irrational logical structure that's not dialectical enough no matter what that fucking james webb space telescope says i don't care how many resolutions they have on it those empiricists they cannot have the monopoly on truth that is for fucking dialecticians i didn't learn german for nothing um you know like like that seems just so terrifyingly reactionary to me and like not, I don't know, not like it doesn't feel like for for the standards of this society, that's like super conservative. And so it feels like syncretic to me. feels like that that's, there's some like right wing element there that's like unspoken. Yeah, no, I would, 
I would definitely agree on that. And I think where it gets kind of scary is in the Marxism versus identity politics document somewhere, I don't have the exact quote, but there's something along the lines of like, you know, there are these people who they've absorbed identity politics ideas. And, you know, even if they call themselves socialists or Marxists or communists, if they're, if they're tainted ideologically by identity politics, which is at no point defined. And I guess as I found out can mean anything from like, you know, the most deranged, really out there, you know, tweet that people make fun of to just something really normal and human, like, you know, hey, maybe we should treat people who've been sexually assaulted in like a remotely compassionate manner. Um, If identity politics can mean any of that, um, if you're doing identity politics, even if you call yourself a socialist or a communist, you're actually working against socialism and communism if you're infected <laughs> by, by identity politics ideology. So, like, it doesn't matter to these people if you're like, no, I'm, I am a communist. I just, you know, disagree with you about gender or whatever. They're like, well, no, actually, you're not. And you're actually working against communism, which it's bizarre. And it it very much, I think, comes from that, like, ideological isolation in the the sort of shining path of Grantite Woodsism or whatever, you know, where, like, they genuinely believe they are the only inheritors of the unbroken thread of Marxism and everyone else is on some you know, some other shit that's actually going to ruin Marxism. And I think the identity politics stuff is just one arm of that. But when that coincides with this general social reactionary trend, it gets very ugly. Well, that's a recurrent theme in the writing, right? Um, He doesn't seem to be able to differentiate between basically anything that isn't exactly on the strand of Marxism that he likes, um, is basically like a betrayal of Marxism, um, and it, it's you know I could see if if you're somebody who's like I'm I'm like a I'm a Marx and Engels purist or whatever it's like okay, but anybody who has like gone far enough down the lineage and like arrived at Trotsky, um, you, you're already at a point where the whole thing is like split in a bunch of different directions, right? Are you, are you just gonna say that everything that isn't like Everything that isn't like just talking about how cool Trotsky is is a betrayal of like this capital T truth that you possess, right? I mean, it's insane that 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 inability to make that kind of distinction. I mean, he, he just for him Marxism, it's, he's just writing a form of apologetics, and it's really just a way for him to defend his like stagnant pond. But like, I I stress that like I think that like a lot of Marxism becomes apologetics for. A, a, a favorite form of like domination and exploitation, but these are the okay ones. And like, this follows that trend, you know, of course with Bolshevism and only with Bolshevism, there's an element to Trotskyism where it is a sort of like distinctly European, like version of Marxism. And, you know, and Marxism isn't like a field that's only, it's, it's only Europe. You know, there's Maoism, like there's like the whole like post-Maoist, like black engagement with Marxism. There's like, you know, indigenous Marxism, especially in um, Canada, like First Nations, like stuff. There's uh, there's a number of ways you can go for it. And I mean, 
you know, Trotsky appeals appealed to me like when I was younger in part because he was he's Jewish. You know what I mean? It's, 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 that's nice. Um, but uh, <laughs> and like and you know, I, there there was like Russian Jews on one side of my family, and I was I was like, yeah, you know, kind of nice. All right, you know, kind of fighting for the, you know, fighting for us. That's great. Um, and but this could also be, I guess, kind of dark if you think about like Russia as like like. I don't know. I guess Russia as it used to be thought of, because now Russia isn't really part of Europe anymore. It's sort of like they're doing the yellow peril stuff again with Russia, like the the weird way that Europe has a tendency to compare it to, quote, oriental despotism um, and sort of other it from Europe, even though, like, I don't know, like, like Europe never does a despotism. But yeah, I don't know. Beforehand, like it's it was maybe sort of more thinkable as part of this like interesting German Russian uh, European wisdom tradition, and even though English speaking philosophers tend to think of continental philosophy as being left wing, um, I feel like that betrays and not really understanding Europe's intellectual culture very well, because continental Europe. <laughs> You know, the people that are conservative in continental Europe and are like, ah, bourgeois reason, you're going to try to, how are, why are you going to try to do bourgeois reason when we have the greatness of Germany or something? <laughs> I'm not saying like people, you know, say this full throatedly, but like, I don't know. There's something about that kind of philosophy that lends itself to great national like spirits or great like, you know great canons and it reminds me a lot of it reminds me more of conservative academia than it does of liberal academia it's not as like remix cut and paste it's and you like you know kind of jam structure like <laughs> liberal humanities academia it is much more like we are making commentaries to the commentaries to the commentaries on the canon like stuff mm -hmm. yeah and that was a big part of like, I think what eventually alienated me from the IMT um, was like, there was a period of time where um, the abuse cover up had already happened. And I was just kind of sitting around waiting for things to, you know, go anywhere. I was like, maybe, you know, we can have some other meeting and talk about this and, you know, make it all better. And, and that never happened. But there was a period of time where I was just sort of sitting there and I was inactive and I was just really thinking about the politics. Um, and the thing that just kept making me feel so sick to my stomach was this expectation of like very, I don't even mean patriarchal here in the feminist sense so much as just the conventional, like historical sense of like the, the patriarchal family and the way that is organized, the way that you're supposed to respect, um, you know, your father, uh, there's this patriarchal kind of discipline and expectation of deference towards just these uh, random kind of goofy looking British guys that the organization was founded by. And that's just not uh, something I can do, like just sort of unearned ideological deference um, just because, you know, so-and-so has written so many books. Like, no, I... I it feels alien to me, you know? And 
I know that's why a bunch of people in the organization, uh, you know, think I have, uh, you know, turned bad since I wrote my little letter was there was one line in it about how Ted Grant, the founder of the militant tendency was like militant under Ted Grant was pretty unarguably homophobic. Um, which I mean, like it was, if you read, um, you know, just anything in like, uh, just historical journals about the left in Britain in the eighties, mm. there will be stuff about like the sort of notorious, um, aversion to gay liberation within the militant tendency. But just mentioning that was interpreted by so many people as being like, like sacrilegious, almost like this offensive rejection of the, the great men of the tendency. Um, and yeah, it, it is like intellectually conservative in this weird way. Like this idea that people are beyond reproach. It's just not, I didn't even really do that intentionally to piss people off, <laughs> but it's just, it's really odd. And it's not something I think I will ever be able to get myself to comply with. Well, you, you can't sacrifice the big bang and like, you know, like uh, like uh, Isaac or you know Ishmael, depending on your version of the story, being um, you know sacrificed to God, like because that's uh, that's Kierkegaard's example. It's, you know, Abraham on on the on the mountain, ready to sacrifice his son because God said so, and it, it's like this is you know we're supposed to in this you know reactionary Christian existentialist philosophers mad world. Like, that is what we're supposed to do, is, you know, offer reason on the chopping block. That very reactionary sentiment is just like, I can't get it out of my mouth when I'm looking at a lot of stuff that does, like, it's usually more historicist denial. It has more in common with, like, Holocaust denial than... Let's say, you know, the way QAnon does its conspiracy theories, or it sometimes includes metaphysics and stuff. But at least with the IMT, it's, we've crossed the line between just historical fabrication, you know, Trotsky lying about this or that at Kronstadt, like in misrepresenting uh, the quote negotiation, versus, nah, this thing in physics is just wrong. Yes. I, I don't know. It's it's not not feminist to make these points. I'm just, I'm throwing it out there. Like, like I know I, we, we might have framed it in terms of great man of history and, and uh, you know, I'm, I really care about scientific authority rather than tr- entrusting it to philosophers. So, you know, arguably, arguably we haven't, you know, hit the DMT vape pen enough. But um, look, I'll say it's, this, it's though. It's good enough for me. I'll say this. Pluto is a planet. I don't care what they say. I don't care what those eggheads say. They just changed. They said it wasn't because they wanted to get attention. I don't believe them. Taking a stand. That could be, if you start your own tendency, that could be your your big bang. Yeah, Pluto, yeah, Pluto is still a planet uh, in this tendency. If it's not, uh, that's, that is, uh, you're bringing in alien class interests uh, <laughs> yeah. by denying the existence of Pluto. Something that we the authors have never ever ever done before here's my hot take i mean i understand with the me too stuff people being concerned it's like how do you how do you adjudicate this stuff with like the meager resources of like a small activist organization right but the example that they give to like defend 
defend themselves is like, well, what if there was like a strike and like some manager like Me Too's like the lead organizer? You know what I mean? Oh. It's like, it's like, uh, well, let's cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> you know funny, I mean? the funny thing is about that particular article is Marxism versus identity politics was written. Uh, I think a couple of years after Alan Woods and a number of other um, big important guys from the international leadership uh, or the British leadership were uh, accused of sexual harassment in another open letter. So there's a there's the whole section there about like identity politics uh, thugs ganging up on labor leaders on trumped up charges. Uh, and to me, that reads as they've never acknowledged the sexual harassment allegations against Alan Woods in any other context. Um, but they did release Marxism versus identity politics, which talks about the, mm. uh, the apparent scourge of a, uh, very important uh, labor leaders being accused of things that they definitely did not do. Um, and that to me just seems, yeah, to be like, at least about that, like on a certain level. But overall I found like, definitely like in my experience dealing with this, there is this just overarching paranoia of like, but listen, if we don't, you know, put whatever 18 year old who is coming forward with like sexual harassment allegations, if we don't put her through the ringer um, and like act like cops, um, what if she's doing a political maneuvering um, to do like feminist Stalinism? And it's like, I, I feel like you would be able to, to tell <laughs> if someone was doing feminist Stalinism. I don't know. I, yeah, well, I mean, it's they, like, they would have a hat. They would have this, like, hat, and it would be, like, super obvious. <laughs> At least, like, it just feels to me, like, enough of, like, a, a side concern that it doesn't seem worth keeping in place, like, a 1950s-style approach to the subject. Um, and, like, I don't... The way they phrase it is very much that, like, there's no way to move towards a, a more ethical approach to these issues without... Um, you know, endangering uh, democracy itself. Um, but that just, it's just something they made up, you know? Like, there's a lot of things you can do to make these processes, like, more humane for people that don't actually introduce this, yeah, like, strange imagined risk of, you know, anyone being able to accuse anyone of anything and everything's chaotic and, and terrible. Like, the, the, there's at least a discussion that we had about how to... What the same? What gets me is that like this is already baked into like Leninism and a lot of like political life anyway, because of like, you know, in look in part it just comes from like the structure of a political situation. It's not like ideologically bound. You know, if you're in a modern society and you do politics, you will become paranoid. You will start thinking more like a game theorist, an economist, or a sociopath than you would like an artist, like. <laughs> You know, like these things happen, but also, you know, Marxism and it's like Leninism's role in like kind of creating like Machiavelli for the left, you know what I mean? Like does mean that like a lot of these formations are going to like carry this with them. And that was, you know, in the Cold War, it was very like, 
it was very explicit that people were trying to be like, damn, these Marxists like beat us at our own game. They, they, they get to like call the shots about whether like, whether like genetics is true or something. That's like hardcore. I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fucking with that. I kind of want that like level of like, you know, ability to do this. And like that, I don't know. That's like a high point of uh, being able to determine like your reality as like a, like a power um, and like a power fantasy. No, I get what you mean. Um, and I think like in this situation, it's again, I think very driven by like the, like the core sort of ideological malfunction in the IMT specifically, but I think some similar groups is the belief, um, like there's the the classic Trotsky bit about how the, the crisis of the working class is fundamentally the crisis of leadership, right? Um, which like, okay, that as a premise in and of itself is at least like debatable. Um, and then you go from there to like, we are that leadership, which gets... It's like, okay, you're just some failed academic 45-year-old surrounded by a bunch of undergrads who listen to you talk and clap. I don't know if, I don't know if you're really it for the class, but okay. Yeah. Um, and then from there, it's like, okay, so if the crisis of the working class is leadership, and we are that leadership, that means building our sect is the most important task facing humanity, uh, which is, I think, where it gets really off the deep end. Um but once you have internalized that belief, which so many of the people in this organization and others like it have, um, there is a lot of people that you're willing to throw under the bus to build your little sect. Because, you know, if you look around, things are fucking terrible. And we're certainly all on that page, you know? And if you have found something that you believe holds the answer to the abhorrent conditions of just constant brutality and tragedy that you see around you every day, you know, okay, yes, you know, these bad things are happening. Okay, yes, maybe it seems like our organization is run by people who are off on a bit of a premature power trip and people are getting hurt, but like, we need to build the party because what else are we going to do? I don't really know how to argue against that other than saying, you know, I personally do not believe that building, um, you know, at least in Canada, it's an organization that has been around for like coming on 30 years and has like a few hundred members. At that point, I think it's fair to say like, I don't know if this is going to be it for humanity. Um, I think maybe we have some other options and we don't actually need to, you know, build this kind of like multi-level marketing scheme with sexual harassment characteristics. I don't think that's like our last hope. If you believe that, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the problem is like you can get to this absurd position because the person who started all this is Trotsky, right? Like Trotsky basically lost his entire base of power. He was this exile uh, and he's basically attempting to well we'll just we'll i'll i'll just do what i know man fuck it we'll do another russian revolution somehow you know and once he's gone you're basically you're replaced by somebody who what the people who step in to fill his place in whatever grouplet or what have you you know it's like they don't even have that real experience of having lived through an actual revolution (laughs) um 
And so it's it's basically yeah, it just turns inward on itself and becomes all of like all of the political infighting that you get inside of these kind of organizations but without any of the stakes. Right? Like that's that's the recurrent problem here, you know. Cuz again, like it, to compare yourself to like, I don't know, yeah, again like some union organizer getting me to at like the height of like campaign or something like that. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, like, it, frankly, I mean, I don't understand how the organization, if you got rid of Alan Woods, I feel like that's a plus for the organization. If, if his writing is any indication. Yeah. Unless the whole thing is sort of, uh, Alan Woods appreciation society. Yeah. In which case, cause I mean, yeah, the, the, you know what you're saying makes sense. If, if it even is like the, the organization itself it has, you know, just instrumentally, rationally, everything to gain by throwing that off. And, you know, all of these, like, haha, rainbow capitalism, like, you know, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, that's sometimes the reason why people do these things is for, like, PR reasons. And, like, yeah, totally, because it looks good, because, you know, it's, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad and now that people can find out they don't like it yeah i mean and it's insane that i mean because you still see they're moving away from this but you still see people like putting out newspapers and stuff in an era when newspapers that are real can't make money the thing i mean the thing they could actually do if they wanted to make money would be to basically move into new media you know get on youtube get some streamers going and then because like this is how a lot of like big name youtube people make money They, they do it the same way rappers make money which is they essentially create a label and then sign uh, smaller up-and-coming artists to their label and then collect rents off of the money that they make, right? So, like, you know, if, the, if these organizations wanted to do the modern version of getting a printing press, you would do that, right? You would create, like, Trotskyist Prager U, and then you would create a network of, like, smaller content creators who would probably work for free just to get some attention so that they're starting their, they're starting their new stream channel with, like, two vo- three watchers instead of zero, right? It's it's just it, yeah it is basically it, it, yeah it is just it probably is just an Alan Woods Appreciation Society and he gets to like write his newsletter and have like a savvy younger person who knows knows how to do whatever the modern version of Dreamweaver is in terms of website design so that it doesn't look like uh, Marxists.org which uh, we all love in its uh, retro HTML scripted glory. Yeah. Yeah, it comes around. Now we all respect workers' control of production and Marxist.org, where the, the computer nerds really get to uh, put put forward what they... It's, it's like if people that really love synthesizers got to control just, like, how synthesizers sounded all the time. Like, you know, no, 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 you're, you're polluting the essence too much here. Let me let me take over and put the, put the like, synth back in it. Mmm. Voila. I had um, a really brief experience of essentially trying to make Trotsky's PragerU on a much smaller scale. But, um, you know, obviously uh, the IMT, as a Trotsky, has the little, uh, you know, magazine. It's less of a paper with them. It's glossy because they extract a lot from their membership in, in ways of dues. And so they get to, they, they print the covers in color. Um, wow. But like, yeah, it's very, the whole paper thing is so indicative of just the immovable uh, stagnancy of the organization, um, where I forget who said this, but, uh, you know, the idea that um, a sect is 
you know, a vehicle for the preservation of ideas. It, it's so true with the paper thing, right? Where you're like, what, what's with the paper? And you just get some pre-programmed spiel about right. how Lenin said that having a press is important and, you know, we defend our paper or whatever. And it's just, it's, <laughs> you yeah. can't, yeah, yeah. Get it. like, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I'll just let you have this one, right? It's kind of, it's sort of hazing though. Like, all right, you got to do this work. It's thankless activist work. And one time I actually got one of these people to really break it down for me. All right, it's, it's, it's getting you to talk to people and getting comfortable approaching people like and getting getting you comfortable and like so i actually like heard like what the the internal doctrine is for like why they actually have people sell papers it's really just to like get people used to being able to do activisty stuff and talk about ideas and it has fucking shit to do with the thing that you're handing over and maybe you know like funding and it's just like nothing more like incarnates that like the content is nothing and the process is everything you might as well just be like get a goofy hat like get one of those like dr seuss hats with like trotsky was right written on it or something like that and just hey i'll ask you ask you about my hat it's um it's very similar i think in, in social function to the way that some evangelical groups operate where they'll send the kids out with like Mm -hmm. the little pamphlets and stuff. And, you know, it's not really to convert people so much as to cement the idea that the outside world is hostile to you. Um, And, you know, to build some sort of solidarity or some sort of weird trauma bonded solidarity amongst the new recruits. Um, there was a really brief period of time where we tried to like get some sort of other online presence that was semi-functional going on. Um, I was enlisted as, um, I remember one of the full-timers sort of like cold calling me to be like, Hey, uh, Jamie, um, the comrades have been telling me that you, uh, go off on Twitter. And I was like, Oh fuck, I'm sorry. Like, And he was like, no, no, that's a, we could use that. Um, Do you want to help with like the social media? And I was like, sure, you know, and we assemble a little team of of social media people together. Uh, Like people who know how to like animate and make videos and edit audio. And we're like, okay, we're going to do a whole new media thing. So we pitch our ideas and they're like, oh, well, um, you know, we don't want to get, see the core of our organization is selling the paper and recruiting. um, And that sounds like a lot of stuff that isn't that. So then we just dropped the whole thing. It was hysterical. It was like we flew so close to the sun of being remotely culturally relevant or at least attempting to be. And right. then it was, no, actually, we like just having like what's essentially a blog written by 10 different people and a weird magazine that we force like freshmen to sell as kind of, yeah, like a hazing ritual. Somebody pointed out in the chat, uh, apparently PSL tried to do my uh Prager U scheme as well, uh, but they the org wanted too much control over content for it to succeed. And I will say the other thing is like the incentives of the internet are you probably one of the problems you would probably have would be people like breaking off from from the thing to basically you know own their own content essentially. So it would it would I mean you'd you'd have to make a pretty big channel first for it to work. And the other thing is yeah, like a damn cent organization, you know, a lot of the a lot of the social a lot of this online media stuff is very personality driven so you would basically that person whoever was doing that would develop like a lot of power if they had a pretty sizable following online that would probably even 
like exceed the reach of the organization itself, which would be a you know a problem to one of these things. Yeah, Twitter is a more sophisticated totalitarian apparatus because it allows you to join the conversation. Where this is just much more, it's more, it's more repressive of personality, like the Borg. So it can't, it's not smart enough to use Twitter to manipulate you. It's, it's like, it's a real fucking, it's real amateur hour Leninism. Like we can't even get that straight. Like, you know, honestly, trot. You know, this is gonna upset you, but book a ticket, go to China, go to an actually existing socialist country. Go see how it's done. Go see how the masters kept the Leninist party together, even while embracing, like, capitalist-ass capitalism and knocking out universal health care. Like, just check it out. See what's out there, trots. Like, see the kind of grifter that you could be. <laughs> they could be grifting on such a bigger scale than they are. Come on. Come on. <laughs> <sighs> I don't know if we're going to have a better end than that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay. That's it for this time. There were a few things that we realized after we finished recording that we didn't quite get to. Uh, because we did have a few different articles that we read in preparation for this. Uh, one of them was Trotsky's suppressed letter and introduction by Alan Woods. It's maybe the most bizarre of the articles and the one that has maybe the most terminal sect brain of anything I've ever read. Long story short, it's basically Alan Woods talking about how there was this letter that proved the lineage of their sect was legitimate and it was basically just Trotsky being like, hey man, what's up? To <laughs> to um, to Ted Grant at some point in like the in like nineteen thirties. And the way he writes about it, like he writes about it as if it's the great finding this was the greatest mystery of all time and it it's very strange. The other thing we talked about a little bit off mic at the end uh, was Sparts and how Sparts are kind of the they're the most powerful version of like Trotsky Trotskyite sectism and how despite their powerful militancy and powerful cadre building they're not really able to move the needle either I wish we'd gotten some of those comments but I think in the next the next episode we have to do on this series will have to be on the Sparts. <sighs> okay. So, if you want to support the show, uh, hit us up on Patreon. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com or, uh, or you can hit, up, hit us up on Twitter or socials or whatever. Um, okay, I think that's everything. Uh, so, until next time, Keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and you're headed the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.